Brian McClanahan Show, episode 236. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to the Brian McClanahan Show. back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter at Brian McClanahan. Like my Facebook page at Brian McClanahan. And of course, subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast at Brian McClanahan. If you want to find all those social media buttons, just go to my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. You can find all my social media buttons. While you're there, give me an email address and I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, and a free audiobook of the same title read by yours truly. You can also support the show by going to McClanahanAcademy.com, where it's always free to enroll. And those that do enroll do get a free course, 10 Myths of American History. In addition, you get the best deals on forthcoming courses. I do have six courses for sale. And if you enroll and shoot me an email, you can become an affiliate of McClanahan Academy. So you can make some dough on me, which is a great thing. So going out to to McClanahan Academy, get those courses, get your free course. It's a way to support the show and also get something in return. I mean, not only are you supporting the show... You're also getting awesome classes, so it's a, it's a great way to do it. You can also support the show by going to brianmcclanahan.com forward slash support. You can throw a few pennies my way or bucks or whatever you got. Help keep these lights on, help keep the podcast going. You can also buy book plates there if you want my autograph and my many Brian McClanahan books. You can get those as well. You can always get your Brian McClanahan Show logo on my uh, apparel. If you go out to the brianmcclanahan.com page at the top, you'll see shop. Click on that. Take you to all my stuff that I have for sale with my logo on it. All kinds of cool stuff. I mean, crazy stuff too, like clocks. I mean, it's, it's cool stuff. You can get your shirts and all those normal things, but a wall clock. I just find that fascinating. You can get a wall clock. I need to get that. And then, of course, you can go to my affiliate link for Tom Woods Liberty Classroom. It's learntruehistory.com. Learntruehistory.com. You also get economics, philosophy. Great website. A lot of bang for your buck. You're going to support the show by buying a membership through my affiliate link. So go on out there and do that. Lots of great ways to support the show. And always, please share this around on social media. Rate it on Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen to it. Um, It's a way to help get views and listens, which is what the overall aim should be. All right. I promised, and here it comes, I promised a review of Michael Malice's new book, The New Right. And this could turn into a two-part review. We'll see how it goes in time. I don't want to have an hour-long podcast. So I've got not only that book to review, but also three articles I want to get into. And they all kind of work together. Um, I I did have, and I, and I teased that I would be on the Michael Malice show, and I still may be on the Michael Malice show. There was a miscommunication about that. So I had an an hour-long conversation with him last night. Um, He thought he was coming on my podcast. Of course, I don't do interviews. But we did have an interview, just not recorded. And I talked to him about his book, and and, um, it's a great book. And if you haven't seen it, it's The New Right. You look at it there. The New Right, Michael Malice, A Journey to the Fringe of American Politics. Um, first, let me say that Michael Malice, and I told him this, uh, Michael Malice is very entertaining. And if you follow him on Twitter, or you, which is where he does most of his, of his work in terms of his snarky entertainment, which is great stuff, um, he's good. Of course, he's also got his show, uh, You're Welcome, which is funny. He trolls people with that all the time. 
Uh, he's got a great show of conversation, which I think is an important thing. And I told him this. I said, look, the thing that I liked most about your book is that you took people that people don't often take seriously, seriously. You want you were inquiring about what they thought, and you took them seriously. He actually makes a point of that. We can't just dismiss people and not listen to what they have to say. You may not agree with it, but you have to take them seriously, and there's always value in that. And see, this is the, and, and, and he gets into the left in this. This is a major tactic of the left. It's a fallacy of logic. Just It's it's attack on the person. You just say, well, this person, or, or uh, guilt by association. This person is this, and so you can't believe anything they have to say. Or this person is friends with this person, or is associated with this person, so you can't believe anything they have to say. It's not an intellectual argument. That's actually a, a logical fallacy. If you took a, a logic class, Logic 101, you would learn this in that first class. Um, so he takes people seriously, and he gets into what they think. And, and I found that part of the book to be fascinating. Um, the other part of the book I found to be fascinating is something I didn't know really much of anything about, is the way that social media and the internet has been used uh, since the la- in the last decade or so to really build up this quote-unquote alt-right. Now, we can quibble about whether these people are really on the right or not. Um, in fact, I would say many of them aren't, uh, that they, they shade more towards something else. Uh, but the fact is, and, and whether they're really even American in their views, they're, they're not, a lot of them. Um, the fact is that he went out and he did an investigative story on several individuals, and it wasn't a hit piece. He simply wanted to let them essentially explain who they were, examine their, their ideas, and write about it. So I commend him for that. I think this is a valuable lesson for people that are interested in ideas and how to do it. Uh, You can make statements, and he does. He makes statements critical of of this new right. Um, Michael Malice is not on the new right. Michael Malice is not on the right at all. He's a libertarian. Um, And so you can make statements critical of of the people you're discussing without turning them off, without making them be the enemy. And I think, again, that, that type of discourse is missing. And if you go on to his Twitter feed, you don't, you don't I mean, look, he's snarky, he's funny, he, he, he does things to really irritate people, which is great because it's good entertainment. But Malice is a thoughtful person, and he really does, uh, I think, value intellectual conversation. He wants to get to the heart of ideas. And so that is a real valuable part of this book. He's not name-calling, except for the left. I mean, he, he is very critical of the left. I, I don't think that he would... But I think he would listen to people on the left, and I think he does. But he, he is very critical of the progressives. They're awful. You know that he thinks that uh, in, in the book. You, you understand that he doesn't like progressives. And he told me he's working on a super-secret project on that particular idea. So um, it's, uh, it, it'll be... And if he does what he says, it's going to be awesome, right? So... Um, I think that uh, this particular book is valuable in that. Now, I want to talk about my favorite parts of the book and then get into where that fits with some of the some of uh, some of a few other articles that have been published here recently about similar topics. It's like in in the last three weeks we've had a wave on this particular idea of what is the new right, who are these people, um, and it's it's for popular consumption. He actually gets gets into that in the book. How do things become popular? 
And one of the main points I think he makes in this book is that the alt-right or the new right sees themselves on the fringe, and so that is power for them. They use that. It is their muse. They use it to grind because they're on the fringe. And he talks about how these people and how the fringe drives culture in a lot of ways. Um, and I think you could make a case for that. I mean, look, Mozart was doing vaudeville uh, because he was writing he was writing the stuff for the court. He wasn't always getting an audience there. So he started writing vaudeville, which was much more salacious and uh, different. And people loved it. And so he became popular in a certain sector. Now, he was never as popular as Haydn, for example. But now we look at Mozart as the universal genius. I mean, Mozart is better than Haydn. Uh, but he wasn't the a man uh, at the time. I mean, he was he was popular, but he wasn't he wasn't a man of the of the established court. He wasn't the court composer, right? So he was doing some other things to try to make some cash. Um, and you find that the culture is driven that way, and he and he makes a point of that. Look, I mean, in order for people to like you, you have to appear to be hip. And what's better than to be oppressed in America? I mean, look, the, the underdog is always the hip one. Now, I think this has limits because if you would say, all right, well, who is the ultimate underdog nowadays? Well, you could say, well, uh, people in the South are the ultimate underdogs. They always have been. And he brings up Jim Goad, who said this exact same thing, right? The Redneck Manifesto. He has a whole chapter on him. And, and uh, that book was interesting when it came out. I remember when that came out, that book came out. And uh, that, that was the case he was making. You have people, a marginalized group, which he's talking about white working class Americans who are always marginalized. Um, and what's, but nobody roots for that underdog, but they're still underdogs. So you have this natural inclination to want to root for the underdog or to go to the fringe to be the underdog so that you can be edgy. And I, and he says, culture is, it's driven that way. Many times you look at pop culture and how that's done. Um, so this use of the internet is something I wasn't aware of. Some of the things he brought up, I didn't even know this stuff was happening uh, because I just don't live. I, look, I live in books and teaching classes and doing things. I just don't live in that world. And so it was eye-opening how these things are used. I asked him what his favorite part of the book was, and he said it's the poll quotes at the beginning of every chapter. And some of these poll quotes are absolutely hilarious. Uh, they're also terrifying and frightening, some of the things that were said by some individuals. And it, the, the idea was to needle the left and who they were. Some of these poll quotes, the point is to show that the new left or the left, what he calls the church, right, or the cathedral, I'm sorry, the cathedral, what he calls the cathedral, the university establishment, and then the establishment left, their goal is to not just win, the, they want to destroy people. And I think people are starting to see that now. The main thing I want to say about that, and he agreed with me, these people are not the mainstream. They're the fringe, really. The university system is the fringe. The people that go there and operate in the university, they wouldn't get a job anywhere else. These leftist professors, and I had, I mean, I had a professor as an undergraduate. He was an open Marxist. He wouldn't get a job anywhere else. He couldn't. He couldn't do anything else. He couldn't market himself to it. Academics are some of the laziest people you ever meet. They don't really know much. Uh, they only know what crowdsourcing will tell them a lot of times. It's what, what does the literature tell you? But um, even in that, sometimes they're so lazy, they don't even read the primary material. Uh, this is one thing I always loved about Forrest MacDonald. He didn't read the secondary literature as much. He read the primary material, then had his wife go out and read the secondary material, tell him which, which the important books were. He would go out and read those and know them. But his main focus was always primary research. 
And that's as a that's what you have to do as a historian. So I live in that world. And this whole other internet world, which I find uh, many times to be disgusting, frankly. I mean, it is. It's low. It's, uh, it's immature. And, but but the, the new, what he calls the new right has been able to operate in that world and make some waves because of it. Because so many people now are online. And they've used comedy. They've actually been able to poke fun at the other side. And that's been very effective. Comedy is always effective in making fun of the other side. So he gets into that in the book, which I think is fantastic. He said, look, my chapter on dark humor, I love it. He said, because nobody else has ever really done this before. And I agree. The use of humor, the use of humor is important. Making fun of the other side and putting them on the defensive. The left, the left can't be made fun of. You can't make fun of these things because they're like you know, sacred. You're in the temple what he calls the cathedral. You're in the cathedral and you have to worship. And so if you if you're a heretic, well, you're you're committed. I mean, this is this it's a religion. It is a civic religion. And you think back to uh, the uh, the 16th century and the 17th century and how the Catholic Church dealt with the Protestant Church, how the Catholic Church dealt with the Enlightenment and the Scientific Revolution. They were saying this is heresy, and they were trying to destroy the people that thought these things. Well, this is what the left does. They try to destroy people that think other than they do. And so the new right, what he calls the new right, has said enough. We're going to do the exact same thing to them. We're going to destroy them if we can. We're going to take them out. Now, not physically, uh, but we're going to intellectually destroy them. And so we have now, and this is where you get into these two camps, and this is where I've said, the only solution to this is think locally, act locally. It is. It's the, the, the problem with the new right the problem with some of these other groups that are in these other articles that I have here, that if I can get into, is that they're all nationalists. That is combative, it's destructive, and it's not, as Malice actually points out, real America. America has always been balkanized. It's okay to be balkanized. It's just you have to get people to believe that you can be balkanized and everything will be okay. Just because everybody doesn't think like you, Everything will still be okay. You don't need to destroy your enemy. And I think that is, and at least you, you, you can live and let live oftentimes. Now, we know the left doesn't think this way, and it's hard to say that and knowing that the other side wants to destroy you. It, it, it is hard because the progressives want to do that. They want to destroy the other side. They want to eradicate them. And I think there is something to that. Um, so I find that, I found it to be interesting. Now, um, my favorite chapter in the book is a chapter entitled The Strike, and it's where he gets into the history of where this group comes from. Now, he points to 1992 and the culture war speech that Pat Buchanan gave at the Republican convention. And, and uh, then, of course, Buchanan would run as reform, a Reform Party candidate. Um, and I know a lot of people that uh, know Pat Buchanan personally and that are, um, they are big Pat Buchanan supporters. He makes a case that the that the new right, one of Buchanan's books, has become the kind of the Bible for the new right, but nobody actually reads it, <laughs> which I find to be usually the case. Uh, you know, a lot of people say, "Well, I, I support this," but they never actually read it, right? I, I love this book, but they don't they don't know what's in it. And give him credit, he goes out and reads it and quotes from it extensively uh, in one of the chapters. So, um, I found that chapter to be interesting. Now, when I talked to him last night, I said. You know, this idea of a new right has been around before. I mean, you have to go back. And he, he mentions this fusion between 
uh, Murray Rothbard, and Pat Buchanan. Basically, you had the paleoconservatives and the paleolibertarians because uh, that's what Rothbard... I mean, Rothbard was all over the place throughout his career, but this is essentially what happened in 92. And you put this group together and they become this fringe group that starts gaining acolytes. I actually, I told him, I said, there's there's a point before that, that this all begins. And I've talked about this before. And if you've read my book, uh, Forgotten with Clyde Wilson, Forgotten Conservatives in American History, I get into some of this stuff. This actually happened before. I mean, you could go back to Barry Goldwater. But even after that, and there were a lot of Goldwater Republicans that weren't comfortable with Buckley. And there's a, there's a quote in here that he's talking about. Vox Daily says, you know, look. The, the if the if the new right ever gained power they would dig up Buckley and and you know burn his corpse. Buckley, but it wasn't just Buckley; it was people like Bill Bennett and others. See, these people are already in the government, and they were operating within the government, and they were a fringe group. But when Ronald Reagan came to power in 1981, when he was elected in 1980, this group was able to catapult into authority because they had influence with Reagan. And the purest example of that is the ostracism of Mel Bradford, the the, uh, the nomination for Mel Bradford for NEH, and then the, re- the withdrawal of that nomination because Bill Bennett discovered that Mel Bradford had written some disparaging things about Abraham Lincoln. Well, you've just criticized the saint of America, the patron saint of America. You can't do that. And so you see both sides, these neoconservatives, who are also in the establishment, and the and the establishment left have a civic religion that you cannot go against. And so that created a major split in that particular movement. And you had people like Bob Whitaker, um, who wrote a book uh, entitled A Plague on Both Your Houses. He also wrote a book entitled The New Right Papers, or edited a book, which had several really interesting essays in it. And I, and I told uh, Michael about this and said, you got to read these two books. I think you would find them interesting. And of course, you look at people like George Wallace, uh, who really was the new right back in the 70s. I mean, George Wallace was saying a lot of the same things. Look, the, the alienated working class, white working class, doesn't have a voice. This is Nixon, silent majority. Nixon capitalized on that in 1972. He basically picked up from George Wallace. And then Jimmy Carter, who actually quotes Jimmy Carter here uh, in a way that Jimmy Carter fans would find uh, just uh, shocking, um, but he, Jimmy Carter, because of Pat Cadell, who was the architect of the Malay speech, picked up on a similar theme. Donald Trump picked up on a similar theme. And there was a point in the book where he, he gave a long paragraph, and I have to find it. Um, I didn't, I didn't mark it as well as I should have, uh, where he talks about this a little bit. Let me see, it's here. Yeah. He says, quote, this is on page 57, and it's in a chapter, it's in, it's in the, the strike chapter. He says, look, he says, quote, yet despite the establishment propaganda, every time the Republicans have run a right winger in the last 40 years, they have won the White House. And every time they've run a moderate, they have lost. George H.W. Bush was a special proof of this, winning as Reagan II in 1988 before hiking taxes and moving to the center in time for a 1992 defeat. Further, in the last 35 years, the only times budgetary concessions have been wrested from the left were via utter Republican intransigence, namely the Gingrich federal government shutdown and the debt ceiling crisis of 2011. These tactics are straight out of the Rothbard playbook. According to Rothbard, complete gridlock is the best one can hope for in Washington. A paralyzed government was fairly close to his anarchist ideal. 
In this vein, political insanity is not a bug, it's a feature, and also the goal in a realistic short-term approach to bringing about the end of government. I found that statement to be precise. This is what Bob Whitaker actually had to say. When you have a choice between a liberal Republican and a Democrat, or even a moderate Republican and Democrat, you vote Democrat. I wrote an article for Lee Rockwell back in 2012, I think it was, entitled Vote Obama, because voting Obama was better than voting Mitt Romney. Um, I can't remember what year it was. It was, it was a long time ago. But voting, voting this was better than that because the choice was fairly clear. Mitt Romney is going to get you there. Barack Obama is going to get you there faster. And you might as well just go with Obama. You have to, you have to look for conservative candidates or you know, liberty-minded candidates. And if you don't have them, you vote for the other side. Because the, the choice is just to get you there slower. But you're going to get there. And he makes a point where you have a scale of 0 to 10. The progressives amp it up to 10. The moderates compromise at 5. The progressives then amp it up to 15. The moderates compromise at 10. The progressives amp it up to 20. The moderates compromise at 15. You've gotten to 15. What conservatives say is, we're not going past 0. So you can amp it to 10. We're just going to 0 and forget you. That is powerful stuff. And this is what Donald Trump essentially was doing. So this book, this chapter on the strike and bringing up these early, the early stages of what he's calling the new right, which eventually then turns into the alt-right, which I find to be it's just a stupid term. Um, and then uh, the intellectual dark web, which I also find to be a, a silly term. These people, I mean, the intellectual dark web, dark web implies that somehow these people are on the fringe. They're living in a basement in the dark. And the dark web, you know, the seedy thing that you can anything goes these people aren't they're not that they're the mainstream it's the silent majority still it really is still the majority in america now, i know people donald trump didn't get the majority vote um i still think it's the majority of americans though they don't like this they don't like social justice warriors they don't like progressives in in the way that it's being done they don't want everything in your face all the time so uh, they're out there and they're you know they're, they're putting on their pants or going to work they're doing whatever they do they don't really care about these things very much they care about hey w can I can I put food on the table where can I get a job um, where are my kids can I have a good decent school to send my kids to or if the schools stink what can I do about it can I put them in private school can I homeschool can I do these things can I make my life what I want it to be can I go on vacation once a year? Can I do some things that are that are beneficial to me and have some fun in life? Can I do these things? This is what most people, I don't care what race you are, it's what most people think about. They just want safety, security, and the and to have a living. They don't care about these other things. And I'll never forget there was an article, and I think I've mentioned it before on this particular uh, on this podcast. There's an article, uh, there was a, a, a troublemaker from uh, when, when Calhoun College is going to be renamed at Yale. There was a Yale uh, newspaper, the, the, a reporter for the Yale newspaper, came down to Alabama because, of course, Alabama and the community college system has several colleges and, and buildings named after John C. Calhoun. And he went to uh, Calhoun Community College. And he was interviewing people there. And he said, he interviewed uh, a, an African-American girl that attended this, this institution. And he said, aren't you offended by the fact that John C. Calhoun, this defender of slavery, is on the name of the building. Because, you know, we have people in, at Yale who won't go to class. They won't do anything because of this. They're so traumatized by it. And this girl looked at him and said, are you serious? 
There are really people essentially this stupid that won't go to class because of a name on a building. I just I got other things to do. I want to get a degree and I want to I want to go to work and I want to better my life. If these people are that essentially if they're these this type of idiot, there's this special kind of stupid, then I got nothing to say. Uh, and that's indicative of people overall. I don't care about that. I don't care about the name on the building. Are you serious? That's just stupid. And this is why people don't like the progressives, because it's in your face. It's just stupid. It's the attack on monuments or, or culture. And so that actually feeds in to this, to the way that the Internet can be used to go after them. And I think that's that's interesting. But um, the other part of the book that, of course, he first he also quotes Dabney, which is which is amazing. I mean, that's the first time. In a mainstream book that I can, this is St. Martin's Press. He just, he does it and he says, look, I mean, this stuff has been happening. It's it's the the idea that the attack on progressivism has been there for a long time. And he's right about this. I mean, you, you have this right after the war in Reconstruction. Plug my Reconstruction course because I get into that. Um, you have this, this attack on progressivism that begins long before the 20th century. Um, Dabney was spot on, so was Thornwell. I mean, these people were saying, you know, this stuff is not going to end here. It's going to go beyond what the Republican Party is talking about now. It's going to be something bigger. Um, his chapter on uh, democracy, or when he gets into democracy, is really interesting. Uh, now, malice, look, democracy is a problem. One of the classes I took when I was a senior in high school, the title of our senior civics class was the problems of democracy and thinking back on it now that was pretty edgy the problems of democracy uh you couldn't get away with that because democracy now is in the temple you're worshiping democracy when you go to the cathedral or the temple this is what you have to do and of course he gets into this substantially in this uh, particular book and he says look democracy is one of the craziest things out there because he says you can't defend it on any level now i could quibble with that a little bit uh, but the fact is, he says, it's it's one of these things that you just have to take on faith. This is the best. Now, we know the Greeks thought this. Uh, you look at Aristotle. He said, yeah, I mean, democracy itself is problematic. There's nothing good about it. There's nothing good about the tyranny of the majority. So you have to have checks on it because just democracy itself, to worship democracy, is going to create the same problems as, as uh, absolute monarchy would um, if you have a bad king. And Aristotle would say that monarchy was actually the best. But you, you can't, hereditary monarchy, but you can't determine who's going to be the next in line. So you, the, the son could be worse than the father. So you have to have something else. You have to have democracy with oligarchic checks, which is essentially the, the uh, way that the U.S. government was, was set up. You have, you have the House of Representatives, and then you have the Senate, which was supposed to be the state check on the whole system. But these people were also supposed to be wiser better statesmen. I mean, they had to be older. They had to, they, there were different qualifications for that. So that was supposed to be the aristocratic check on the popular will. And the states did the exact same thing. When the founding generation talked about democracy, they talked about it by sneering at it. We don't want democracy. We don't want this thing. It's, it's ridiculous. It's bad. It's dangerous. And so his, his section on democracy and how, I mean, where do you get legitimacy? How do you define legitimacy? If you only had one person vote and that election counted, is that a legitimate election? Uh, because we had an election. I mean, this is what the this is what the the communists and the Soviet bloc would do. We had an election. We had one candidate, and everybody voted for that candidate. So that candidate's legitimate. No, but knowing full well that if you didn't vote for that candidate, you would be shot, right? 
so you, you can't. Is that legitimate? It's democracy. Is it legitimate? How do we define legitimacy? And I'm going to have a whole uh, podcast episode on this um, because there was a, a debate that I had with um, a sort of a listener, a troll, in other words, in many ways. But regardless, the uh, the point is on democracy, and I've seen him do interviews on this before. He, I mean, he, he's very disdainful of democracy, and so is the new right. I mean, they don't like it. They want to return to kings, and that's also problematic because... That's not an American institution. We're talking about the United States. Now, if you're saying you want to go to France and return, you want the Bourbons back in power. Okay, well, I mean, the French have a monarchical history. So do the, obviously the British do. Uh, just about any European power does. But we don't have that here in America. So you have to come up with an American solution to this issue. And it's not monarchy. But there are American, there, there are aristocratic solutions to this. And we can find them in history, and, and I'll have because I'm running up against time. So I said this might be a two-part review. Um, I am just focusing on Malice's book because I think that's important for this particular episode. Uh, but the the fact is, you don't have an American uh, you don't have an American example of monarchy. Now we've got an American king. Now there's no doubt about this. Uh, the presidency, as I pointed out, nine presidents who screwed up America. We've got an American king the, the, from really in the last half of the 20th century, this is what we've gotten. But it's gotten worse since the 1980s. And the the worship, the reverence we have for the presidency has gotten just disgusting. Um, and it's one thing I was hoping Trump would maybe tear down a little bit. And I think he has in some ways. People don't have, but they do it, and I say he's torn it down. The attack on Trump often comes, particularly from the right, if you call them the right, that he's not presidential enough. He's not monarchical enough. Um, I, I, the, one of the future podcasts, I get into this, uh, there was a great article about the executive power and I covered it. Um, and so I'll get into executive power, but the fact is the president's not a monarchical, monarchical enough. So there are so many things I could talk about this book, uh, so many different parts of it that I just found, uh, just fun. I laughed out loud several times in the book and there's just some great quotes in here, um, uh, let's see. There was one. This is this is a great malice quote. I'm going to give you a malice quote. This is on page 211. Fighting DC is like arresting the street dealer, who is the endpoint of the in the drug trade. It's it is the most visible aspect of the problem, sure, but it doesn't address the source of the spreading contamination. This is why I say think locally, act locally. This is why you start talking about decentralization, secession, nullification, these type of things, because you cannot reform D.C. from D.C. You have to get outside of that. You have to operate outside of D.C. And I think that's, I mean, it's a great quote. We, I've been talking about that you know, for, for years now. But you can't fight D.C. from in D.C. It's never going to happen. And there are a lot of people that realize this, and so they're working outside of that. But this is where federalism has to work. Right? Federalism has to be the solution to this. Not this. Federalism is a solution. It's not the problem. It's the solution. And federalism allows for California to be California and Alabama to be Alabama. Or it, it, for malice, you know, coming into the South, and he talks about this, and not liking white gravy, thinking it looks disgusting, or wearing jeans in August, which I found. I mean, some of these things, I thought it was my cousin Vinny, right? I mean, I, of course, living in the South, and you watch my cousin Vinny, that movie's a riot. 
Uh, but here he comes in from Brooklyn, and this this kid from Brooklyn coming down. He's not a kid, of course. This man from Brooklyn, uh, but he comes in here and he is he doesn't. He, it's he, I asked him about grits. He said, "Yeah, I know grits. They're disgusting too." But the white gravy got me, and uh, which I found to be very funny uh, because biscuits and gravy is just awesome, right? I mean, it's just it's so good, uh, and you gotta love it. Uh, but, um, and then have your grits, you know, and, and put grits taste like whatever they you put in them. Uh, but the, the fact is that he, it's a culture shock for him. So you can let Virginia be Virginia, Alabama be Alabama, New York be New York and California be California. And we all understand that we're different and that's okay. Uh, we all just get along. Uh, now within the States themselves, then you start seeing other, other battles take place. But the fact is, um, in these states, you have political culture, and the people in those states often, if there's not a whole, I mean, if they're fairly uh, you know, stable and not having a whole lot of outside influence coming in, uh, you're going to have similar discourse, and you can you can operate in similar ways. So I found that to be an interesting quote. Uh, there's a couple other in here that I liked. I mentioned the, the, the quote about uh, where, where I, essentially the Bob Whitaker effect. Um. He said, the outcasts decided to make a move from the fringe, targeting disenchanted working-class whites who have been cast aside by both political parties. This is the new right, uh, but that's not new. Um, and uh, I mentioned this before. In this sense, the contemporary new right can be defined as precisely those who are driven from mainstream conservatism. Uh, and he mentioned, he mentions uh, Peter Brimlow, John Derbyshire, the Rothbardians, the Randians. Um, they're all driven into the wilderness. And so they have to, and, and look, I've seen people say we got, and, and he talks about this. The university is the biggest problem. He brings up a quote from, from uh, Ayn Rand that says that. And the, well, the universities need to be burned down, burned to the ground. I mean, they're, they're, the, they're the seed bed of the progressive left. Now, wrapping up, I'll just say how he defines the new right, because I think this is a really interesting, it's a coalition. He says the new right, is loosely a loosely connected group of individuals united by their opposition to progressivism, which they perceive to be a thinly veiled fundamentalist religion dedicated to egalitarian principles and intent on totalitarian world domination via globalist hegemony. Um, I think that's accurate, uh, and I think that's a very good, uh, very good definition of what the new right is. Um, he also talks about the Overton window, which uh, this is Tom was the three by five index card of allowable opinion and how Trump has blown that apart. There are certain things you weren't supposed to talk about, but Trump said, you know, and he mentions the fight club thing. You can't talk about fight club. If you, the first rules, if you're in fight club, you can't talk about fight club. There are things if you're in the cathedral, you can't talk about. And Trump blew all that apart when he gets up and says, you know, Robert E. Lee's a great general. It's great. Uh, because he's blowing apart the over, he's blowing apart that three by five index card of he's shredding it of allowable opinion, and the left goes ballistic over this. Oh, can you say these things? They they throw uh, just fits over this stuff. So, a fantastic book. It's fun to read. It'll it might make you uncomfortable at times. It might make you question some things. He's got his his discussion on genes is funny. Um, it might make you uncomfortable at times, which, but he, he's thought-provoking, and again, he takes the subject seriously, and he's not—he's not condescending. He doesn't condemn. He just discusses, and I think that's the most powerful part of the book, and why I think everyone should go read it, um, because he does that very, very well. Um, and if you've ever watched 
malice in his show or uh, he, he his interviews are, are fantastic. He's a great interviewer. Um, so actually when, it, when we first had the conversation, I was excited just to have him interview me and I thought that's what he was going to do, but then it was going to be me interviewing him, which I'm not a great interviewer, right? So that's why I don't do interviews on the show. I'm better at just running my mouth. Uh, so I, I, well, I'm going to have to get in these other articles next time because there's three of them and there's too much. I'm going to have to do another episode on that. I, I took 30 minutes on this book. I think I could do two hours on the book and not get tired of talking about some of the parts in it. So uh, some of the chapters, it's just really good. Um, and I recommend you go out and get it. Michael Malice, The New Right, A Journey to the Fringe of American Politics. Uh, I don't. I, I look for it in my Barnes and Noble. They didn't have it, but they certainly had plenty of books by Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton. So you probably have to get it online. Maybe they have it at your local bookstore. Uh, but either way, pick it up. Uh, it's a great read. You can. I read it in about two days. Um, two days of actual sitting down and read it when I had time. It's it's quick, uh, and that was even being interrupted. So it's not a long book. It's a, it's a it's a breezy read, but it's deep, and you have to get into wrestle with what he has to say. So. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Brian McClanahan Show. I will see you next time.